And it's good to have our entire church uh, together with us today. Uh, the Ridgeview campus is joining us via video, and that means all of Blue Valley is going to sit under uh, one message, one teaching today, and we're honored to have bring that teaching Dr. Owen Stray. And Dr. Strain is a Maine native and a graduate of Bowdoin College with a degree in history, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with a Master of Divinity in Biblical and Theological Studies, and then he received his Ph.D. from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He currently serves as the Associate Professor of Christian Theology, Director of the Center for Public Theology, and Director of the Residency Ph.D. Program at the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Kansas City. Enrolls within the SBC and Greater uh, Evangelicalism, Dr. Strain is the Senior Fellow of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a contributing writer to the Gospel Coalition, a research fellow of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and a fellow of the Center for Pastor Theologians. He is also a well-established author, and his most recent work was released just this week. It is a biblical anthropology entitled Reenchanting Humanity, a Theology of Mankind, and that subject matter of that book speaks to our topic today. He's also just a good guy, um, and he let me know uh, before I came up in the first service, he was reading over my shoulder seeing my introduction, he said, you can lay off all that stuff, um, but I said I was going to do it anyway, you all know me. So uh, we, uh, we are honored to have Dr. Strayan with us today and appreciate um, his wife, Bethany, and his three children letting us borrow him for today's worship service. So welcome him to Blue Valley Baptist Church. Okay. Thank you so much, Derek, for that very kind introduction. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you this morning and to open the Word of God together. You know, we are in a confused age today. I think many of you feel this confusion. You're in roles here in the Kansas City area, and you are facing pressure on different issues. And one of the main issues that is putting pressure on the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ today is indeed transgenderism, packaged oftentimes with homosexuality. A lot of you are in secular jobs, and you know that your, your workplace, your school, your setting, political context is advancing these kind of issues, and it is tough to know exactly what to think and what to do at different times in a context like ours. Perhaps the confusion is crystallized for me when I see that Facebook just a few years ago unveiled over 50 gender options. Most of us were under the assumption that there were two gender options and that they weren't in fact that optional, and yet we are learning new things today, including these three identities. These are actual genders that are now said to be live options for you and me in our time. Circ gender, these are not made up, circ gender. This is described as a gender that feels so magical and grand as to be indescribable. That is an option, perhaps, in your marriage today. You might have said this to your spouse on the way in. You are indescribable. <laughs> I may or may not have heard those words at some point in my life <laughs> in my own marriage. Circ gender. 
Dimogender is another one. This is a gender closely related to demons and the supernatural. So that's a live option as well. And then perhaps my personal favorite of the three, Felis gender. This is a small cat-like gender. I don't know what it means to be cat-like. Nonetheless, it is indeed an option in 2019. We list these not to throw stones at anyone, but because this really and truly is where we are. We are now in the category of, I'm not making this up officially. This is where, friends, the wisdom of man is leading. It is leading squarely into just this kind of confusion. Those of you who are younger, I see a lot of younger faces here, praise God for that, this campus and the other campus, Ridgeview, you are facing this as a live option today. Your classmates, perhaps, are debating which identity, like these identities, they are going to choose. This is all related to a broader issue, though. This isn't created in a vacuum. I think of how 50 years ago, the cover of Time magazine featured this question, is God dead? One professor, according to this article in Time, introduced a new liturgy or order of service. He revised Psalm 23 to mark, note how blasphemous this is, the death of God. He revised Psalm 23. He was our guide and our stay. He walked with us beside still waters. He was our help in ages past. He is gone. He is stolen by darkness. Heaven is empty. Now listen, that kind of thinking, what we would call formally in philosophical terms atheism, has become fashionable in our time. Skepticism is in, religious belief is out. In 2019, a new question has emerged in America. Is man dead? So-called, the death of God has already happened. In other words, now we're confronting a second kind of death. Is humanity dead? In other words, have we lost any meaning? Is there any purpose in our humanity? Or are we merely a collection of atoms? Many people today believe these truths, and these things don't stay in a textbook somewhere in a public school classroom. If you believe in evolutionary theory, I mean real evolutionary theory, you believe that humanity has evolved from a collection of gases that nobody put there that just spontaneously came into existence and that led to the sparking of the first life system leading all the way up to, yes, complex little old you and me. What this means then is that you and I have no divine origin, no divine figure made the human race and thus accounts for your existence. No, 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 no. Humanity is accidental. We've just happened to exist because of, again, gases colliding. We have no real distinction from the animals. We have no greater story. We have no heavenly end to which we are traveling. Atoms collide, and so does mankind. That's it. This shift in thinking goes hand in glove with the second major emphasis of Western culture over the last 50 years or so, the sexual revolution. Many of you are familiar with this movement that trumpeted really a, a breaking away from any kind of Christian or religious worldview when it comes to human sexuality. We should be free of marriage. 
We should be free to do whatever we want, sexually speaking, with our bodies. Some of you lived through this. Some of you are aware of it. That has had massive influence in America and the West, basically in large part because it taps into the desires we have as a result of the real fall of Adam and Eve. You see, we actually want to have the constraints fall off, don't we, in our sin. We want to be able to live however we want with no obligations to any creator, with no obligations to any scripture. We want somebody to come along and tell us, we're waiting for an opportunity, live however you want. That's because we have what you could call a neo-pagan desire. There's a wildness in the human heart that yearns to break free believing that if we break free, we'll be truly happy. If we could just live the way we want to live, if we could just act out sexual expressions with whoever we desired, then finally we'd throw off the shackles of the church and the Scripture and we could just do what we want. That is a tremendously pervasive and persuasive idea in today's culture. It's not a new one, though. It's actually an ancient one. It's actually the original call of Satan to the man and the woman created by God to doubt God and trust the serpent and live however we want to live. Please understand this morning, that is not God's call. That is Satan's call. We're not in neutral territory. There's a great conflict playing out in this place and in your very life between God and the devil. We've also seen the rise of another movement, what's called feminism. We're in what's called the fourth wave of feminism, where gender is not seen as fixed, but as a construct. Some of you have heard that term. It's been taught to you. You go to a secular school. I went to a secular college in Maine, and I was taught this kind of idea that gender is a construct. It's something created that you and I create. According to modern gender teaching, we all have a sexual orientation enduring patterns of attraction to someone or something. We also have a gender identity. This is how we understand ourselves, uh, the, the person, the gender we, we believe we are. We have what's called gender expression, according to sources like Planned Parenthood. That's the way we present our gender identity. We then have anatomy. Here on the list is where anatomy kicks in, seemingly fairly important. This is your core physicality, speaking politely in mixed company, per your birth sex. We hear a lot today about birth sex. Birth sex is very important for you to understand as a concept because it differs from brain sex, okay? If you're taking notes, please don't try to take everything down. My wife tells me I go too fast and I'm a little bit fire hosey, okay? So <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> but if you are struggling, holding on by your fingernails already in this little session, get down birth sex and brain sex. Because if you want to give a good answer today, from the Scripture, from the Gospel, to our very confused culture, but not just the culture broadly, to people, to people right here in Johnson County and Kansas City and the broader area, you need to understand that people today believe that they have a birth sex, that's their core anatomy, okay, tracking, and then they have something in their brain that's called their brain sex. And birth sex and brain sex may very well be different, yes? So that is why then people embrace a transgender identity because they believe, yes, they have certain anatomy, certain physical structure, but their brain sex is different than their body, you understand? And so they need to change, alter, have surgery on, take pills to revise their body. 
to, to be who they truly are, which really is the, the value of the age. I need to be who I truly am. I need to find out who I truly am and live accordingly. We're going to see actually this morning that the Scripture goes a very different way. And here's where I want to spend the bulk of our time. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I want you to see that life is not going to be about a great make-up-who-you-are project. Life is actually about figuring out who God has made you to be and then walking in that identity. Friends, that is where freedom is. That is where happiness is. That is where purpose and flourishing are. Genesis 1, we're going to skip a few places in Genesis 1 and 2 in our brief time this morning. Genesis 1 verse 26, the Word of God says this, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. That's it. Moving ahead to Genesis 2, the sixth day of creation, the apex of God's creative work, verse 7, Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Moving ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your holy word. I pray your blessing on us now as we look into it to find wonderful things in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I have five truths for you from this passage, this collection of passages this morning. Five truths we will cover in rapid-fire fashion. First, our identity is not primarily sexual, it's spiritual. You have a primarily, fundamentally spiritual identity. Many of you in here are Christians. Some of you are probably not Christians, it may surprise you to know that the fundamental marker of your human identity is that you are made in the image of God. You can't undo that. You didn't choose that. God chose that. God did that for you, in you, and to you. And no one can undo what God does. 
We, in other words, are the only being out there that has the stamp of God upon us. I don't think that reduces to intellect or certain traits, although there's lots bound up in being an image bearer. I think you and I are image bearers, and we can't change that. Even the fall of Genesis 3, a real historical plunging into sin and judgment as a result of sin, doesn't change this fact. If we are to know who we are as human beings, we need to know this. We don't create our identity. You understand? As human people. All around you, again, people in America are saying, I found out who I was. I I have finally felt free to inhabit the identity that is truly mine. No one can tell me who I am. I need to be authentically able to express who I am. That's the opposite way the Scripture goes. The Scripture says, your identity, just so you know, is fixed. You're made in God's image. You're a created being made to know God. You have a mind so that you would know His truth. You have a heart and emotions that you would feel deeply in God. You have a soul so that you would live eternally with God in heaven. In other words, our identity is not make-believe. It's not something we create from thin air. And it's not fundamentally sexual. The most important thing that is true about you is not what proclivity, what desire you have sexually after the fall. The most important truth about you is that God made you to know Him. And that is true of everyone in here, every human being that walks on the planet. The second truth we see here is that God is the one who made manhood and womanhood. God made men and God made women. He made Adam and He made Eve, as Genesis 2 portrays. The Lord has not made us Teletubbies, androgynous creatures that look and feel the same. We are made in the image of God, but He has made us either a man or a woman. We are alike, but we are definitely different. Manhood and womanhood proceed from the very mind and design of God before the fall. So our differences as the sexes, as men and women, differences expressed oftentimes in marriage with the the sexes, you know, a man and a woman interacting and trying to figure out this unique deal that is a man living together with a woman for all of life in covenantal union, that was God's idea. God wanted this. God loves unity and diversity. The Trinity itself is one God, unity, in diversity, three persons. So, in our world, the world God has made, God loves unity. We're image bearers and yet diversity, man and woman. That's not the way worldly thinking goes. Worldly thinking wants to reduce everything to sameness, wants to make everything the same, wants to level all distinctions and diversity and brilliance and beauty, and yet you cannot do so if you recognize God's design. Men, you're not a lesser being. You're not an idiot or a goofball. God made manhood. God created you and gave you existence. Women, you are not a lesser being than a man. God made womanhood. God loves it. God delicately made the woman from the man's rib. Manhood and womanhood, then, is the gift of God. Listen to me, friends. This is countercultural, okay, in 2019. 
It is not a bad thing that a child would have the body of a boy or of a girl. That's not a sentence of imprisonment. That is the gift of God. God made it so. Third, glorious truth we see here. God gives the man and the woman distinct identities for His glory. Distinct identities. The man, you see, verse 15, clearly has the commission, before the woman's even made, to work and watch over the garden. The man is called, in other words, to what we would say as provision and protection initially in the design of God. This means then that there is a call in every man, I believe, at some level to work and protect, and a man will not thrive unless he inhabits these calls in some way. We also see that there's something not good about the pre-fall creation. It's not good specifically that a man be alone. Now, we'll learn from the rest of the witness of Scripture that singleness unto God is a glorifying state to the Lord. So, let that be said, but most men are called to marriage in order that the human race, in simple terms, would continue to function and exist. So, it's not good here, even pre-fall, that a man be alone. And contra what our culture tells us, it is not good today that young men made for marriage would pass years and years and even decades being alone. It's not good for them and it's not good for the young women who are made for marriage. So what is the church, friends? The church is a, little, is a little training ground for marriage. Not that everybody's going to inhabit that state, but that those who are called will step up and find that glorious calling. And specifically, that a man will lead in leaving father and mother, verse 24, and by God's grace, as God allows, as God works, find a wife, lead her hold fast to her. In other words, never let her go. It is not women who are called to set the emotional temperature of the home. It is not men who are called and allowed by Scripture to tune out from the family. It's men God charges with the leadership of their marriage and their family to the extent that Ephesians 5 will make clear in the New Testament that marriage is a picture of Christ and His church the very gospel of divine grace. And a man, this is shocking for some of us men, a man is called to inhabit the role of Jesus, who is the head of the church. In other words, to self-sacrificially lead his wife and his family. And a woman we see here, back to Genesis 2, is identified here in two places as a helper, one who can support the man and bless him in unique ways as they together fulfill God's mission, the man leading, having responsibility to do so even here. This means that there's no case biblically for so-called macho manhood or macho Christianity, call it what you want, where a man thinks, I don't need a woman. Even a married man thinks, what, is, what does she do? What does she bless me with? No, 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 no. In Scripture, the man is supposed to understand that this woman brings things to the table he doesn't have. He, <laughs> the Lord, this is kind of funny, the Lord is saying, Adam, you need help, <laughs> even before the fall. He's not saying it to the man in the sense, as I've already tried to cover, that Adam is some, in some ways dumb or an idiot or anything like that. That's not what Scripture teaches either. That's our, what our culture often teaches men, that, that they aren't as 
you know, advanced or valued or something as women. That's what we hear today in lots of different ways in 2019. That's not what God is saying. God is saying to fulfill my divine mission, filling the earth, giving me glory, ruling it, you, you need the woman. You need to procreate. You need to fill the earth, and then you need to, to take dominion over the earth. And women have a valued role in that high calling. We see fourthly, beyond this, that the witness of Scripture is clear. Building from this foundation, we can't embrace transgenderism. Scripture is clear here, principally, and elsewhere in the Bible. The church cannot embrace or endorse or approve of transgenderism. You say, prove it in rapid-fire fashion. Okay, let's try. Deuteronomy 22.5 in the Old Covenant Law, this is a passage you don't often hear talked about much, Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 forbids expressly a man wearing a woman's cloak. It was not to be done in ancient Israel. Why? That went against the design of God, apparently, that a man would present himself as a man and a woman would present herself as a woman. God is glorified, in other words, in ancient times and today when this happens. In 1 Kings 2.2, another text, David calls his son Solomon to be strong and show yourself a man. So there is this call distinctly to manhood, to his son, to step up in the strength of God, the righteousness of God, and lead well. And that call shows us that there's something distinctiveness about manly leadership in Scripture. We see in Proverbs 31 that this godly woman, this archetypal woman, if you will, has a God-honoring, family-loving, home-strengthening identity. This is a very gifted woman, isn't she, in Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. That tells us, as godly men, what we're looking for. We're not looking for women, you know, who are only half-gifted or something like this. We love the wisdom our wives have. We love this, the, the, the godliness they bring to the marriage and other things. So we're not scared of that. In the New Testament, Jesus reinforces this passage that we just read in Genesis 2. In Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, Jesus teaches that God made humanity male or female. There's no cat-like gender there. There's no indescribable gender there. There's male and female, man and woman, and He created marriage for the exclusive, lifelong union, covenantal union of one man and one woman. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is not something we dissolve because we fall out of love. If you could fall out of love, we all would. Contra the kind of hallmark ways we sometimes talk about love, we all fall out of love in a Genesis three world. We all have to repent of our sin as husbands and as wives. We all need divine grace for our marriages and our families. We need it as fathers and mothers with our children. We're not self-sufficient Christians doing great by ourselves, and then we need God to jump in at the 11th hour when things get rough. We depend upon divine grace every single second we live. There is no such thing as a self-sufficient Christian, and there is no such thing as a self-sustaining Christian marriage or Christian home. Every family, every marriage needs God's inexhaustible grace in order to give God the glory He deserves. 
There's no such kind of marriage other than that we recognize for sinners, redeemed sinners like us. In 1 Corinthians 11, moving ahead, Paul urges that men and women present themselves in distinctly, physically, masculine and feminine ways in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. He wants men to look like men, and he wants women specifically in this passage, speaking to the Corinthian church, to have longer hair than men and show that they are distinct from the man and that they're under a man's authority in the context of marriage per creation design. This is controversial stuff, but you see actually that the Old Testament and the New Testament speak with one voice about honoring God as a man and honoring God as a woman. And what does that mean? It means that if we are not doing this for whatever reason, we are dishonoring God and sinning against Him, and we should not do so, even if all around us, boys and girls, men and women are, even if they compromise, even if they go against the design of God, even if they embrace androgyny, the church is called to go the opposite way in order that we would honor divine design. There's so much more to say here, but this rapid sweep of Scripture shows us that the New Testament does not edit Genesis 2 or change it. It actually expands upon it. It shows us that being a man or a woman is so important for God's glory, and that leads to our fifth and final matter this morning. We need divine grace to be godly men and godly women. We need divine grace to be godly men and godly women. Listen, if you are here and you have in some way been influenced by your sin, your sinful heart, we all have one by nature, and this sinful culture to deny God's design, you yourself, in your life, then it is time for repentance before God. It is time to leave behind these behaviors, and it is time to embrace the sex the maleness or the femaleness that God gave you when He made you. This means not just that you stop wearing clothes of the opposite sex or something like this, or have the behaviors of the opposite sex, but the gospel actually goes much, much deeper. It means that you repent not simply of behavior, but of desire. Because you see, our desires as a result of Adam's fall go in the wrong ways to the wrong ends. And so sin, repenting of sin, is not simply a matter of doing what you did or saying what you said. It's a matter of saying to the Lord, my heart is in the wrong place. I'm sinning against you, and I repent of this. This is true for every sin, isn't this? There's not a separate gospel for individuals who are drawn to a transgender identity. That's not a separate category of sinners. Romans 1 indicates that this is indeed behavior that invites the judgment of God and represents the judgment of God on a society. So this is serious sin. Nonetheless, every one of our sins separates us from God by an infinite gap. And so we need the one gospel of grace that calls us to repentance of our sin, confession, and transformation by the power of God. What I'm trying to say to you as we close is that it is not brain sex that tells us who we are. It is the body God has given to us. We see this then if we're in a state where we need to repent of these kind of wrong desires and wrong actions. 
We see this for those of us who are Christians and are not drawn for whatever reason to this kind of rebellion against God. Your, your charge as a church, brothers and sisters, our work here in Kansas City as the body of Christ is to speak the truth and love on these matters. Do not expect as you do so that you will be applauded. Do not expect that Channel 5 will put you on the news and laud you for that courageous action. But wherever you are, whatever job you have, whatever school you're in, whatever grade you're in, your call is not to capitulate to the culture and applaud what the culture applauds. Your call is to know the design of God for humanity and live according to it and promote it and evangelize based on it and watch as God in His magnificent wisdom and power does a new thing in all He calls to Himself. That is your call. Let's pray.